0: I'm very grateful to be up here preaching his word for us this morning. Uh, If you've been with us, we've been walking through the book of Exodus, and it has been amazing, hasn't it? It's been wonderful. Um, God has come through for his people in a mighty and powerful way. The Egyptian army was utterly decimated in Exodus 14 at the Red Sea. uh, And then last week, Doug uh, broke down for us the song by the sea and showed us that we have a mighty judge and a mighty savior that calls us to run to him, not away from him. And so in the, now in the text today that we're going to have before us is uh, we see how uh, we're going to see how the trip to Mount Sinai went for Israel and for God. Uh, we're going to take a close look at the trip and we'll have an answer to the question. I hope we have an answer to the question, why God tests his people? Why does God test his people? Now, recall, uh, Israel or the the story of Exodus is a narrative, okay? And and last week we took a a little bit of an interlude in the story to observe a poetic song where Israel expressed praise for their God who mightily brought them out of slavery and rescued them from the imposing attack of Pharaoh's army. The portion of Exodus before us today will pick the story back up. So we come out of the song into the story of Exodus as Moses tells us about their journey from the from that side of the shore of the Red Sea down to the mountain where Israel would meet and worship their God. But this wilderness journey does not go as one might expect. Or maybe if you're an avid trip planner and always aware of the situation you're going into maybe you could have perceived some of the things that Israel's is going to have a difficulty with this morning and you saw what was coming so as we read the text today i want us to see something truly sh- some truly shocking revelations about the characters of the story i also want to i also believe that if we look at this text with any sense of familiarity oh, I know what Israel did on the trip down to Mount Sinai, or we feel like we might know what's going on in the story, and so we just gloss over. We might actually miss out on how amazing the things are that take place on this journey. So as we leave the concert by the sea, and we are on the way to the first meeting place, where Israel will meet the incredible, infinite, eternal, almighty, world-ruling, Satan-crushing, sick, healing, sinner-saving God of Israel, and worship Him as He has called them out of slavery and out of bondage to do. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. If you're using one of the Bibles around you, that text can be found on page 57. I ask that you would follow along as I read. Uh, I will be skipping a portion of chapter 16. I'm not going to read all the way to 17.7. I'll skip some of 16, but uh, I'll I'll show you where I make the transition. So Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah or the Hebrew word for bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there He tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all of His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians." For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped by the water. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the 2nd month they after they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for You have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger? And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumblings, and that you you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumblings is not against us, but against the Lord. Then the Lord said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumblings. And the As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God." And in the evening the quail came up and covered the camp. In the morning the dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now skip with me down to 17, starting in chapter 17, starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped by Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. There were... Um, Therefore the people quarrelled with Moses and said, "Give us water to drink." And Moses said to them, "Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord?" For the people thirsted for the for the there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, "Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst?" So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on a rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called, on the name, he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Oh Father God, I thank you for your constant reminder that I have nothing to say up here. I only can proclaim your word to your people. I can only do what Peter call, what you called Peter to do, to feed your sheep with your word. Father God, as we come to Exodus. Now, as we have read your text, I pray that our eyes would see that what you're up to in the wilderness, what you're up to now in our own hearts, God. And God, I pray that we would be a people who are wholly dependent on You, who do not grumble in our testing, but who submit to You and Your ways and become wholly dependent on You. Father God, I pray that You would bless us and encourage us with Your Word. I pray that we would see Christ in Your Word this morning like never before. God, You are so good to us and You are so wonderful. We praise You. May we never grumble again. May we learn from Israel as You have recorded these words for our instruction. May we honor You with our lips and our hearts, God. I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So the main point that I want you to walk away with this morning, and I want you to see in the text, as I take time to explain the text and apply the text and show us how this text points to Jesus, the main point I want you to understand this morning is that God tests His people to expose their sinful hearts that He might heal them from their sin and provide them with eternal life. I'm going to say that again. God tests His people to expose their sinful hearts that He might heal them from their sin and provide them with eternal life. So this morning as I go through the, this passage, there's not going to be any like other points to follow along with I'm going to show you how the the text breaks up into different scenes as we move from one place in the wilderness to the next. But what I want to do is really I just want want to explain the text. I want to see how this text applies to our lives today. And then I want us to see how marvelous this text points us to Jesus Christ. So explaining the text. Now Israel had just praised God with their lips at the edge of the sea. I and mean, they sang an amazing song as the Egyptian army was utterly decimated before them. But I wonder if what flowed from their lips actually was rooted deep into their hearts. Because now Israel begins their journey south down the Sinai Peninsula to gather at Mount Sinai to serve their mighty rescuing God, just as he called them to. But Israel doesn't like the journey. They're complaining. And there are three things that Israel complains about. First, they complain about unclean water. Moses, you brought us out here. There's not even any clean water. Then they complain about not having any bread or meat. Where is the supermarket, Moses? And then they lob their final complaint against Moses and Aaron, ultimately at God. You've brought us out here to kill us by thirst. Great. Thanks, Moses. Good, good on you. So instead of praising God as they did at the Red Sea, they begin to complain about the conditions of their journey. Can I get a testimony? I mean, can anybody feel that way about their lives sometimes? I mean, it's only been six weeks since they left the bondage of slavery, and they're out there in the wilderness complaining, complaining about this God and His leaders who brought them out there to die of thirst and starvation. Again, as we as modern day readers are tempted to point our fingers and wag them at Israel and go, oh my gosh, Israel, what are you thinking? But I'll tell you, if we only focus on this text, on Israel's complaints, then we are going to miss out on what God is doing and testing them and that, that the purpose of that testing. And so if we miss that, we're, we're going to miss what the Lord is actually telling Israel today and what He's telling us today. So uh, historically in this text, this section of of Exodus has been interpreted in a a few ways. Uh, One way is that the Sinai wandering is about how God's people are to obey Him only if God blesses them. But, But that actually turns, this interpretation turns the blessing of God's people on its head. First, it fails to recognize that actually God commanding us and telling us how to live is actually a blessing for us. Uh, there's times where I struggle with that. I read the Lord's commands and I'm like, is that really for me? Is that really about me? Is that, is that really going to work out? But secondly, an interpretation that only focuses on God, uh, the, our obedience is only based on our being blessed, is that it makes obedience dependent upon blessing. So God, if you bless me, then I'll obey whatever you have to say. That's simply not how God works. The second way that this uh, text often gets interpreted is that the Sinai weren't war- I'm sorry the Sinai wandering is about how God sustaining is, 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 is sustaining Israel in a time of dire need. I mean, yes, they need resources. I mean, we, we talked about the, the approximate number of people. We're talking about two million people wandering through a wilderness, desert-like place. I, mean, I don't care how much they loaded up in Egypt, they're probably not going to have enough to last however long it's going to take for them to get to the promised land. And, and I want us to know that, yes, God does provide in the midst of dire need several times in Israel's history, But He is up to so much more than just meeting our physical needs. He is up to so much more than just meeting the physical needs of Israel. This only focuses on God as a provider of physical blessings. And yes, God does bless us with physical gifts, but He plans primarily to bless Israel and to bless us spiritually rather than merely physically. Okay, and the third way that we can interpret, and that 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 people have interpreted this, is actually looking forward to Deuteronomy chapter eight, where Moses explains in Deuteronomy what was going on in this time of testing. It explains this section of ex- Exodus, specifically Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two and verse sixteen state that the wilderness journey test took place in order that He, that being God, might test you by hardship to learn what was in your hearts, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And in order that to test you by hardships only to benefit you in the end. Now how many in here go through life's hardships and go through the, the, the tests that the Lord has us and go, Lord, I'm here for you to just expose everything in my heart. And I'm here to be patient as I wait on your eternal blessing. I, I mean, brothers and sisters, I, friends, I do not act like that before the Lord. I want immediate gratification I want immediate pleasure I want I want my questions answered right now just like Israel where's the water Moses where's the meat Moses but God has a greater purpose in testing us because God is concerned with the heat with healing and providing for the heart of Israel not just their physical needs so we see these three tests And that's how I'm going to, so taking what Deuteronomy chapter 8 reveals about what's going on in Exodus here, I I want us to understand these tests. So we're going to see these three tests as God displays his intention to his people. He doesn't merely want to provide them with purified water, bread and meat, nice ham sandwiches in the desert, or spring drinking, a spring of drinking water. He wants to give Israel a healed heart fed by His Word and His living water. So this these tests show up in three scenes. So this is sort of the structure of the text here. The first scene is the bitter water at Marah in Exodus 15 from verse 22 to 27. Then we have the shortage of food in chapter 16 verses 1 to 15. And then there's the complete lack of water in the third scene at Massah and Meribah, 17, 1 to 7. So let us look a little bit into the details of these uh, these texts. So this is the first scene in, in chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. Scene 1. They're on the way to Mara. The wilderness of Sur was an area east of the Nile River in the Sinai Peninsula, where there was likely what what many historians and archaeologists have come to understand is that there was a a wall, a fortified wall constructed down the Sinai Peninsula that protected Egypt from uh, Asian invaders. They called them the sand crossers. So so Egypt had built a a wall, a fortified wall. And then there's the three-day journey that covered uh, how long that this, this may have been. And that, that three-day journey, literally, if you translate the Hebrew, it actually translates not just so much a three-day journey, but a 50-mile journey. So nearly two million people in three days cover 50 miles, and lo and behold, thirst sets in. They've run out of water. They make their ailment known to Moses by grumbling against him. Because the only water that they can now find is bitter water. It's not drinkable, Moses. You've led us to a pool of water that we can't even drink. And then what does Moses do? He does the only thing he knows to do as their leader. He cries out to God, depending wholly upon God and God alone to act. And God instructs Moses on what to do. And we see here that Moses is completely dependent on divine, on the divine instruction of the Lord. If nobody else in Israel gets it, Moses gets it, I can only depend on God and His Word. He's the only dependable one, dependable one out here. The instruction that God gives to toss this log into the water, it becomes a miracle where miraculously the water becomes drinkable even to the point that it's not just clean water, it's actually sweet. What a blessing. God heals the water to point out that it's free of anything that might cause, them to, to, might cause them disease. Because what does He say there in the command? He says that in Exodus 15, in the command, He says that uh, I, if you follow My uh, Word and you obey Me, I will not put the disease that I put on Egypt on you. So he cleans the water, healing it from any disease-causing bacteria or whatever, that they can drink it and it be sweet and a wonderful drink. So he puts Israel to the test that if they keep his word, that he will be their healer and he will keep diseases and pestilence that struck Egypt away from them. So God, here in the midst of their grumbling and complaining about bitter water, offers Himself as the healer of Israel that if His words are obeyed and His laws are kept, He will be their healer. God and God alone is the ultimate source of all healing, friends. If, you can heal, if He can heal the waters of Marah with a log, surely He can heal the hearts of the Israelites. And now we move to scene two. The shortage of food in the wilderness of sin. 16, 1 to 15. Israel now makes their way out of the wilderness of Shur, and now they're into the wilderness of sin. But there doesn't seem to be a Whole Foods market in the wilderness of sin. They can't pull it up on their GPS. Imagine that we see that the wilderness is not a place where fresh supplies of food are available somehow the hardship of the wilderness causes israel to get all nostalgic about egypt okay they remind moses and aaron how they believed it that it was so wonderful And they were so well fed back in Egypt. when We sat by by the meat pots until we ate until our full. Do you not remember that he just removed all the straw from your brick making operation and it was the worst labor you had ever been in? I mean, what? And then they hypothetically say, like, I mean, you brought us out here to starve us, Moses. So we're going to die. We're going to die of starvation out here because of you. However, the hypothetical scenario they put before Moses shows that they lacked all faith in the divine providence of God. They lacked all faith in the divine providence of God. They believed themselves to be hemmed in once again into an impossible situation where death by starvation was the only option. Does that not sound familiar a little bit? Hemmed in where death was the only option. Do you not remember the Red Sea? How quickly they have forgotten how God provides at the right time in the best possible way. I mean, didn't they just sing about the Red Sea miracle? Scene 3. The lack of water at Massah and Mirabah. Now the Israelites in chapter 17 are even closer to Mount Sinai. They're almost at the base of the mountain. Yet again, they are without water. And this time, there was absolutely no water to be found. They don't even have dirty water that needs to be purified. They have nothing. So they end up quarreling with Moses and Aaron in verse 2. And the Hebrew words here and the the language of the the Hebrews here is that Israel actually is turning on, on God and His leaders. They're actually judging God in a sense of putting Him on trial. God, what in the world are you up to bringing us out here to a place where there's no water in order that you might kill us with just thirst? and dehydration. Their demand for water denounces and accuses God at the same time. Because what does Moses and Aaron do? Say, you're, you're, you're complaining to us, but what you're really doing is you're complaining against the Lord who rescued you out of Egypt. You're complaining against the Lord who just brought you across the Red Sea on dry land, who crushed the army who was going to kill you. And now you think He can't just come through in a moment's notice? And amazingly, here, God takes the very rod that had deprived Egypt of water by turning that water into blood to satisfy this bloodthirsty mob with a spring of drinking water from a rock. is that not astounding? The very rod that He could have struck them with, He strikes a rock instead. And a spring of water flows forth that they might drink. What in the world is God doing in testing His people here? So that's the explanation of these three scenes in the text. So how does this text apply to us today? Oh, I mean, I told you not to get all caught up on the grumbling of Egypt. But... We can't ignore the fact that they did indeed grumble. They did indeed misuse their words. And I just want to remind us, brothers and sisters and friends this morning, of the fact that our words can be misused. Our words can either be used to build up and encourage and edify people, or they can be used to tear people down and trash our God. And I want to read for you the warning that Jesus tells us about in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 33, about our words, friends. Either, this is Jesus' words to His disciples and to the Pharisees who were blaspheming the Holy Spirit at the time, Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. He looks at the Pharisees and he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Meaning it sounds like there's truth coming out of their mouth, but their heart is depraved and evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Where does our grumbling come from? It doesn't come from the pit of our stomachs or the thirsty dry tongues that we have. Our grumblings come from our heart. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, On the day of judgment. This is how serious this is, friends. On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by words you will be justified and by words you will be condemned. Your words, how you speak, how you speak to one another, how you speak about God, reveals much about your heart. So much so that Jesus tells us That if our mouths don't give a testimony to a changed heart, then our heart is not changed. So brothers and sisters, please, as we see Israel grumbling here, misusing their words to accuse God, accuse His leaders, and and put God on trial, we must be careful about how we use our words. But there's something else that grumbling expo- exposes here. Because ex- grumbling exposes an ungrateful and idolatrous heart. When we grumble, as Israel grumbles, God's, we are, as God's created people, doing two very distinct things. First, when we grumble, we demonstrate just how ungrateful we are. We are blinded to the realities of the blessings all around us and even distort how things were or even are. And that's how Israel can get to the point to going, Egypt was like a really good thing. All right, was it, guys? Like, Really? Just consider the blindness and the ignorance of Israel when they said they used to eat by the meat pots full of meat in Egypt. While they were slaves working under extremely harsh conditions, they were not the prize of Egypt well taken care of. They were enslaved and harshly treated, crying out to God for salvation. Second, when we grumble, we demonstrate the idols that we've made out of ourselves. Grumbling at its core says that my ways are better than your ways. Grumbling at its core says that our way is better than God's way. So if Israel is effectively saying to God, this is not how we envision being liberated from slavery, God. We want you to save us the way we want to be saved. Have you ever said that to God? God, I don't like this right now. This is not how I saw this going. This is not how I had this all planned out. Israel thought they knew the best way for God to rescue them, but God was after something far grander than their health, wealth, and prosperity, friends. He was after their hearts and their eternal salvation. Getting blessed immediately might feel good for a moment, but God wants to make us new creatures in Christ and bless us and sustain us with His Word and provide eternal, an eternal spring of water that leads to eternal life with Him. So what are we to do? I would call us to be a thankful people. A people filled to the brim, to overflowing of gratitude and thankfulness for everything that God has been up to. Even think for with a moment what God has been up to to provide and preserve humanity, especially His people. So I'd ask you, When's the last time you counted your blessings? Name them one by one. Or, have you ever considered really what it takes to get a meal that you prepare to your table? Consider being thankful for the weather. The farmers, the truck drivers, the warehouse owners. The food standards and protocols to make sure that you actually get consumable food. The seed that actually sprouted. The interstate transportation system or railway. The multiple refrigeration devices that needed to be operational to get your food from the field to your table. The tires on the trucks that didn't blow out. The checkout counter that didn't stop working before you tried to pay the grocery store manager who actually approved the order, on and on we could go about the various things to give thanks to God for when we sit down just for a meal. Consider what it took to get you here this morning, to put breath in your lungs, to rise you to wake, to have a shower, a car that was operational. So many things to be thankful for. Oh, we are in such a need of a check on our grumbling hearts when we do not get the eggs or the milk we wanted. Or, we are in such a need to re-inform our hearts about just how much actually we take for granted when it comes to the kind providence of God to extend such grace and mercy to us that we actually have food. That we're here today. And just today, just think about what it took to get us to now. Let alone the various numbers of years each of you have been alive in this room. The psalmist says in Psalm 28:7, the Lord is my strength and my shield and in, in Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to Him. Will you give thanks to God today? So we see this showing up in how we use our words and how we ought to be called to thankfulness. But I think one of the things that this text exposes about our hearts as it applies to us today is oftentimes we walk around with a heart of unbelief and it shows up because oftentimes we are impotent in evangelism. Now by impotent in evangelism, I don't mean that the gospel proclaimed is not what the Spirit uses to powerfully save the lost. That is the only thing that can save lost people. What I'm getting to is that we, what I mean is that we often have impotent evangelism because we don't actually evangelize often we say we don't share because we fear man and the rejection or persecution that might come our way but i believe one of the reasons that we don't share the gospel is because we don't really believe what god and his promises mean to us and how they've changed us We've not really lived truly with His Word hidden deep within us because we don't trust it and live by it and it alone. What does Jesus say? It is only by the Word of God that man lives. We can't live by bread alone. We don't just need God to provide our meals. We need God to provide everything that makes our being live and breathe and act in this world for His glory and the good of others. We live with an impotent mixture of the ways of the world and the words of God that compel us somehow to live partially aligned to the world and some ways aligned to God. Israel could not have Egypt in them and serve the Lord. So the Lord tests them to bring Egypt out of them, to get it out, so that His word, His commands, His rules, His statutes would give all of their hearts what they needed. They must trust God and take Him at His word and find their healed and fully supplied identity in Him and Him alone. And I would say that if we do that as God's people, if we find that we are healed by God, fully supplied by God, and our identity is in Him and Him alone, there is nothing that will stop us from evangelism. There is nothing that will stop us from spreading such a wonderful news. When we truly understand and believe that it is only God who heals and transforms and provides His powerful word, then by His powerful word, then we too, we will too simply grumble in the here and now and believe that our way is better than God's way. If we fail to believe and truly understand that it's only God who heals, we need to proclaim His salvation to the masses. We need to tell the lost of His provisions. We don't need to have an impotent evangelism because we have a mighty God who transforms hearts and minds for His glory and our good. But just how good is it? How good is this news? So now, I want us to go from explaining the text and having the text applied to our lives to how does this text teach us about Jesus? So how does this text point to Christ? God's aim is to heal our hearts and provide for every need. The ideas that start here in Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22, that go to 17.7, are developed throughout the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. One thing God wants to provide. There are three. One of those things. God wants to provide healing. God plans to give Israel and all of His people, new hearts. New hearts. Ezekiel 36:26 to 28, God says, "And I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in. What? My statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." That's what the new heart that God gives us allows. That's the kind of healing. We don't want to obey. Without that healing, we don't want to obey God. But God provides healing for Israel and for us. Two, God provides the bread of life. We can only live by the Word of God. And we, so we, we don't only feast at dinner tables full of food, but we feast upon Christ. The Word made flesh. What does Jesus say in John chapter 6? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So God provides healing. He provides bread for life his word and the word made flesh found in Christ Jesus, and He provides living water. What does Paul tell us about Exodus chapter 15 and 17, 16 and 17? We are to drink deeper of the well that is Christ who gifts us with eternal life. We are to drink deeply of the well that is Christ who gives us eternal life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 chapter 10, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Who did God strike in the wilderness? It's not just what He struck, it's who He struck in the wilderness. And the mingling of these truths right here before us is right here before us in Exodus. Because God does something that is unimaginable in the text. Israel is complaining after they've experienced one of the most transformative rescue missions in all of Scripture. They praise God with their lips, but what Moses reveals to us is that their hearts are actually far from God. They don't really trust Him. They're complaining, grumbling, and they've worked up to the point to where they want to kill Moses and Aaron. But God... Being rich in mercy does something stunning. He goes after their hearts, and his plan is to change the Israel Egypt drunk sin-infused heart with the hearts that are actually healed. I'm your healer. Just like the water was purified, I will purify you. I will heal you for you, for all of your sin and all of your rebellion. God tests to reveal their hearts. And those hearts are sinful and ungrateful. They blindly think that Egypt is still a good idea. And then in 17 verses 1 to 7, God takes the very staff of judgment that He struck struck Egypt with, turning water into blood, and He uses it not to strike Israel. Notice, God, there is no... Action of divine judgment against Israel in all of their grumbling in the text. How in the world? Like we just just saw a king who was pridefully arrogant against God and God decimates the king and his nation. And now Israel's out here in the wilderness depending upon God and they're out there grumbling because things aren't going their way. And then God doesn't do anything to them. It's stunning. Amazingly, God can withhold the rightful anger and wrath against the grumbling and complaining people because He knows that they will be cleansed from their own unrighteousness because they won't be able to be sustainable under His wrath. So what does He do? He takes that that rod and He strikes the rock. And who is the rock? Christ. Christ. He strikes Christ instead of striking Israel, friends. That is good news. That is good news. He can deal with Israel gently in the wilderness because He will strike His Son on their behalf so that those who believe and trust in Him will have eternal life. What is God up to in the wilderness? Why is God testing you in your own wilderness? He's exposing your heart to make you trust fully in him because he struck his son on your behalf. And as if he could go no further, the healing of their hearts and the providing for their spiritual needs and their physical needs, he actually, in the part of 16 that we skipped over that we'll talk about when we get to the giving of the law in Exodus, he actually tells them how to rest. He takes a grumbling, ungrateful, unthankful people, strikes His Son on their behalf, and then says, come and rest. What kind of God is this that we serve, brothers and sisters? What is amazing that is revealed to us about God in Exodus is that a healing A spiritual thirst quenching God who offers rest to a grumbling praise with their lips only people. Oh, how wonderful it is to be tested by God, even with every disobedient fiber that our hearts would be laid bare before him, that he might rescue us, that he might heal us, he might provide for us and grant us rest from the judgment and condemnation due every sin we've committed against Him. Only if we will stop trusting in ourselves and trust in Him and His Word. We deserve the just punishment of our sins and our grumblings. But our God struck Christ on our behalf. And Jesus Christ experienced what we deserve in consuming the wrath of God on our behalf that we might live and have eternal life, that we might drink deeply from His well. We must stop, brothers and sisters, trusting in ourselves in any forms of man-made religious ways that make it acceptable to keep a little bit of Egypt close to us while we half-heartedly serve God. It doesn't work. We must accept the testing that the Lord takes us through that we see our Israel-like hearts and say we will not serve two masters anymore. We will only serve one master. The master who has saved us. The carpenter who came and hung on a tree that we might be saved. So now, as we see how stunning a God, how, sa- how saving a God we really have, revealed to us in Exodus 15:22 to 17:17, 17, 17, will we be the true children of God and cry out with a loud voice, like the psalmist teaches us in Psalm 139? Search me, O God, try or test me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me to the way of everlasting. I don't know what test you're all in. But I can tell you what God's up to. At one level, He's revealing your heart and whether or not you trust Him and obey Him. So why does God test us? Because He is a mighty, heart-healing, spiritual need-providing, rest-offering rock and spring of eternal life. He has much more in store for us than our physical needs just being met with purified water, with bread and meat, and with water in dry places. Our praise and our glory and our honor are due to Him for His testing and for His salvation. Christ has been struck that you might live. Believe and trust in this God today, friends. Let me pray. Oh, Father God, we desperately need Your help. Our hearts rarely like any form of testing and revealing of, of what's actually inside of us. So God, I pray that we would have a better idea of what You're up to in testing us like You tested Israel. And God, I pray that we would be a people who trust Your Word. And we trust and know fully that Christ Jesus has been struck on our behalf. May we now sing praises to You And may the praises that flow from our lips flow directly out of our hearts of gratitude and thankfulness and praise and adoration for such a great and mighty God. In Christ's name, amen.